Hey there, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we interview 25 of the world's best homebrewers and get them to give you their tips, tricks, and secrets right into your brain pan. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with ways to check it out. Yeah, well, and speaking of checking out the conventional wisdom, we're going to do some of that today, because today we're going to go to the pub, talk through the usual sort of things that's going on in the beer life. We're also going to talk a little bit of feedback, and then, and then, and then, we go to the lab. The lab! Finally! Finally, we're back in the lab! But yeah, we're going back into the lab, and we're going to talk uh, talk through our experiment that our Igors did about keg purging, and whether or not a full keg purge actually makes a difference in how your beer ends up tasting. So, stick around, we'll do that. And then, of course, we're going to the lounge like we always do, because, well, we like to lounge. It's the only place where you can wear loungewear. Uh, <laughs> not me, buddy, not me. So we're going to the lounge where we're going to talk to one of our sponsors, uh, Seth, of Mecha Grade Malt. Uh, Denny, you got a chance to interview him all about uh, what it means to be a craft monster and just why would you do this strange thing? Yeah, and the cool thing is he's more than a craft monster. Unlike most of the monsters out there, he grows the grain that he malts, so... Uh be sure you stick around for that interview. It's really fun. And then, of course, we'll answer some of your questions, or at least try to. We'll give you a quick tip, and we'll drop something other. And then we'll let you get on about your beery day. So uh, stick around for all that. We'll be right back after these words from a few of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew. Makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by... The American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that'll take too long to list here. Head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Hey, we're back. We have some stuff to talk about here before we get into the meat of the show or the beer of the show, I guess as it were. Or the malt of the show. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We have uh, we have a few announcements to make. Drew, take it, buddy. If you haven't listened to it yet, uh, you might have missed last week's episode of The Brew Files, where we uh, actually talk about, well, America's foundational beverage. That's right, 
good old-fashioned hard cider. And we talk Denny's approach and my approach, and huge surprise, they're different, because Denny lives where he's got actual trees, and I live where I have civilization. <laughs> yeah, and believe me, I prefer it that way. So go listen to the episode, learn how to make uh, cider on your own, uh, because hey, sometimes a break from beer is not a bad thing. And also, don't forget that our sponsor, Pico Brew, well, they're running a special deal again. So right now, if you use the code PicoDenny, P-I-C-O-D-E-N-N-Y, you get a special deal. Denny, what is the special deal? You get 300 bucks off on a Zymatic, and that offer is good until the 1st of January, 2018. So if you've been thinking about getting the Zymatic, here's a way to save yourself 300 bucks and put that into the ingredients you can use to brew on it. It's a, a great system. Drew and I both have one, and we both love them. So uh, yep. if you're thinking of getting one, there's a way to get a deal on it. And if you haven't memorized the Pico Brew product, lineup the zymatic is their original unit which is the two and a half gallon no pack build your own kit uh, type of system yeah right go for it yep it's it's a fun way an easy way to brew and it's great if you're into doing experiments because everything is totally repeatable again that code is pico denny p-i-c-o-d-e-n-n-y one of these days they'll have a pico drew code and it'll give you 50 percent off i think <laughs> yeah or charge you three hundred dollars more eh. and when you uh when you order your zymatic uh just enter that code at checkout and uh, you'll get your 300 bucks off and speaking of sponsors and all that sort of good stuff uh it's time for a reminder of the pledge yeah and let me just real quick go through this uh we're going to be talking about uh, a lot of our sponsors products here coming up and uh we we love them and what we need to do is let you guys know that we don't say that we love these products because the people are our sponsors. We ask them to be our sponsors because we love their products. We want to turn you guys on to good stuff that we find. So our pledge is that we will never, never push a product just because somebody is sponsoring the program. We will only have people who are sponsors who make products that we use and believe in and feel totally comfortable recommending to you guys out there. So we ain't doing it for the money. We're doing it because we love the products. We love the people that make them and we want to turn you on to them and enough said, huh? All right. So back to the, back to the meat of the program here. Um, so don't forget you know, as we said, we have sponsors and they help support the podcast, but you too can do your part to help support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click on the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... Our charity for this part of the year is Axel's Angels and the Desi Strong Foundation, which helps fund care and treatment of pediatric cancer. So come on, people give a couple bucks, whatever you can afford, go to experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link and uh, help out those kids because, you know, it's good for your karma and who doesn't need better karma? Probably the Dalai Lama. Uh, yeah, okay. Maybe, maybe there's one person. The rest of us, uh, we could we could use some. So, uh, like I said, go to experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link, and give whatever you can afford to help support Axel's Angels and the Desi Strong Foundation. And now, for feedback. For feedback. For feedback. For feedback. So, our first feedback of the week comes from Derek Clark from Scotland. Uh, he says, Hi, this could be considered somewhat of a meta question, as it's a question about questions. 
Is there a list of all the questions and answers you and Denny have covered in your Q&A sections? I can see that being a really valuable resource and would really help people out. By the way, love the show. Keep up the amazing work. Regards, Derek. You know, Derek, no, there isn't an archive of all the questions that we've answered <laughs> no. and the answers, because that would require transcription work, and uh, no, I'm, I don't want to do the transcription. <laughs> no, no. You know, when when uh, this question from Derek came in, the first thing I thought to myself was, boy, that is a damn good idea. Oh, we it's a great idea. do that. And then I thought to myself, I'm not going to do it. I don't think Drew's going to do it. Uh, so, you know, I guess if there's somebody out there who wants to, uh, work for beer to do all that, uh, Drew and I can throw you some beer, but other than that, uh, Derek, I'll tell you that it's a great idea and who knows one of these days we may get to it. Well, and to that point, I would actually reiterate that call for volunteers. If there are people out there who want to say tackle an episode and send in a transcription of the Q and A. I'd say go for it, and we will gladly take your help. Just uh, contact us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com, and maybe we can start a Q&A transcription project. <laughs> maybe we can, and maybe we can't. Uh, if you guys are crazy out there, if you have more free time than we do, though, we'd love to have your help. Yep. So our uh, next piece of feedback comes from Andrew Rostis in Australia, and I just have to mention here that Drew and I are going to be there uh, just about a year from now, in October of 2018. So uh, what Andrew has to say is, you mentioned a taco beer in your latest podcast. Two birds in Melbourne already do one. It's pretty tasty. Cheers. Love the podcast. You know, Andrew, uh, I'll take your word for it, and maybe when we're over there, I'll have a chance to try it. But uh, I find it hard to think that it's going to be a beer I'm going to really want more and more of. Yeah, and, and Andrew isn't the only Australian who reached out to us to tell us about Two Birds and their their taco beer. But, of course, while I was thinking about it, I mean, it's all inspired by the conversation with the Seveseros last episode. Uh totally forgot there's Taco Hands IPA, which is a collaboration between – Tired Hands and Cellar Maker. So, a nice hazy taco-y IPA. And I'm sure that would be Denny's favorite, too. <laughs> hazy taco-y IPA. Those are words that should never be spoken together. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's just something wrong with that. Well, there you go. It, but, it, no, there are a couple taco-influenced uh, taco beers out there, but by the way, while we were talking about the Sefaceros, I have to really reiterate that I had a great time hanging out with them, and I really loved the conversation that we had and really like what those guys are doing. So if you haven't gone and listened to the Sefaceros interview in episode 49, go back. Give it a listen. It'll be good for your ears. Yeah, really, really. Okay, so we've made some announcements. We've uh, talked about some feedback we got, and I think it is now time to head over to the pub and cool down our hot, tired throats with a beer. Thank baby Jesus, I'm thirsty. <laughs> Sounds great. Stick around. We're going to be right back with the pub life. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. 
Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Hey, welcome back. Drew and I are sitting here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of Everywhere and Nowhere in Your Town, USA, and we are drinking beer. Hooray. What are you drinking today, Drew? Well, I'm drinking something that has a sort of a special connection to the podcast that I think we're going to have to talk about later, but I am drinking a Jacaranda Rye Pale Ale from Claremont Craft Ales over in Claremont, California. Uh, if you don't know uh, Claremont, it's a little town just outside of, you know, sort of L.A. proper, about 35 miles outside. It's one of the foothill communities and uh, famous for kind of a conglomeration of colleges that are there. But Claremont's been uh, in business for about six years now. And Jacaranda Rye Pale Ale is one of their flagship beers. And it's named for a very famous plant that is grown basically in Mexico and Central America and is all over the place here in Southern California, the jacaranda tree, uh, specifically the blue jacaranda, which produces these absolutely lovely blossoms that are also an enormous pain in the butt to clean up every year. But they make a jacaranda rye pale ale, and the reason why it has a special connection to the podcast is I was talking with the brewer slash owner uh, the other day, and it turns out the initial variant of the recipe belongs to somebody we all know on this podcast. Let me see. That would be either you or me. Yeah, I don't have a ripe ale or a recipe. Oh, let me see. That kind of narrows it down then, doesn't it? <laughs> kind of. So I thought that was funny, and we will be talking to them because I totally want to explore that connection a little bit more. And they're, pre- they're pretty good people. Go figure. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm really honored whenever somebody thinks enough of my recipe to brew it commercially. That's, uh, that's pretty cool, I have to admit. I'm sitting here and I'm drinking a Descender IPA from Good Life Brewing over in Bend. This, again, is like one of my absolute favorite styles, the classic Pacific Northwest IPA. I know that a lot of you are into IPAs from the other side of the country. Not me. I like these that come from around here. They're crystal clear, they're crisp, and there's not a hint of orange juice to it. Uh, Nice firm bitterness, great aromatics. When you open one of the cans, it just floods your nose with the aroma of hops from this beer. I I don't know how widely Good Life is distributed, uh, pretty much all over the state of Oregon, I know, probably around the Pacific Northwest. If you're in the area, check it out. It's a great beer. All right, so philosophical question here. Now, I've got the difference between West Coast and New England. And I've got the Mm -hmm. difference between West Coast and Old School East Coast. But what's the difference between West Coast and Pacific Northwest? Good Life actually addresses this on their website, even. What they say is a big, true Northwest IPA mixed with some West Coast style. And to me, I think that uh, I... This is only my own definition, of course. But uh, I would say that a Pacific Northwest uh, IPA is going to be hoppier, especially in flavor and aroma, than what most people think of as the West Coast style. Uh, This one is an extremely light-bodied beer, so that it's uh, not hard to drink, and uh, it 
it's just, you know, as they say, playful bitterness to allow the bright citrus flavors to shine through. So, you know, that's, that's what I call a Pacific Northwest IPA, but it's uh, definitely a subset of the West Coast style, if you're into all that kind of stuff. I was going to say, I mean, that sounds like the exact same thing you hear out of brewers in San Diego and whatnot, but maybe it's just that, you know, our, our uh, IPAs down here are just angry. <laughs> angry bitterness yeah. not well, playful and I, you know and I, you know i guess i uh, I, I equate pacific northwest style beers to the proximity to hops so in my mind at least i find them to have a bigger fresher hop presence although you know that's not exclusively true because there are some darn good ipas coming from all over the west coast from northern california uh down to southern california uh, so whatever yeah. alright well hey listeners what do you think is Pacific Northwest IPA actually a thing or is that just splitting hairs because people want to be special I vote for splitting hairs mm-hmm. of course you would alright well hey let's go talk some beer stories or actually let's start with a wine story okay let's do uh, a story about somebody doing something you should never do so there's been a video running around on Facebook for the past couple of weeks from a Duke, a Duke's Folly uh, a winery and they had a stainless steel barrel that they filled with yeast for the wine. And I guess they sealed it and weren't counting on it being super active. <laughs> and the video is just, you know, one guy taping it and another guy with a really, really, really long pole poking at the barrel, trying to bust off, uh, bust off the cap. And you look at the stainless steel drum, right? Now, keep in mind, stainless steel drum. Lots of strength. And the ends of this thing are bulged out like somebody had a bad can of potted meat. And yeah. <laughs> and the guy's just sitting there whacking on the cap as hard as he can in order to get it come off. And when it does, shoots a geyser, I don't know, what would you say, 30, 40 feet in the air? Yeah, something like that. Just this twin V geyser of grape juice and grape skins and yeast and everything else as a giant pink mist going up in a way uh old faithful done in uh, done in red wine uh, you know I, I would like to know more about the story behind it i have to assume that this was something that happened accidentally i i don't know but uh, you know we, we were debating about the fact like i mean as you said it's this is something that you never ever ever want to do my only problem is once that thing actually does happen once that situation happens i don't know any other way to handle it than what they did <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, you could put it like, you know, half a mile away and shoot it. But other yeah, than that, I, yeah, I don't really know what else you could do with it. Yeah. But we we will include a link to this because you really have to see the spectacularness of this geyser. And to my mind, this is also a, a very good point about this is why you do not have active yeast inside of stainless steel vessels that are sealed. Unless you, know, unless you know what you're doing. Many people who harvest yeast have uh, advocated putting it in a mason jar in your refrigerator. And i got to tell you, people, even if you keep that yeast cold, it's still going to keep working away on whatever medium is in there with it. If you use glass, do not screw that lid down tightly. Uh, I learned the hard way by having to pick pieces of glass out of my beer fridge. Uh, what I've gone to now is using plastic half-gallon tubs with snap-on lids so that uh, if the yeast continues fermenting, the worst thing that's going to happen is that the lid's going to blow off. So at any rate, take a lesson from these people. If you save yeast, make sure that there's a way for the pressure in the container to vent. 
Yeah, because otherwise, spectacular things happen, and spectacular is not always a good idea. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, uh, moving on to somebody else who had some bad luck. Yeah, so a New Jersey man was awarded three quarters of a million dollars after surviving a, a sip of beer tainted with caustic uh, from the taps of the McCormick and Schmidt restaurant in uh, Harris Casino in Atlantic City. So, oh, man. Uh, now, I saw some people, you know, who were complaining about, you know, the three quarters of a million dollars. Have you ever been burned by caustic? I mean, I've been burned <laughs> by caustic on my hands and whatnot, and it hurts like a mother. I don't even want to try and think what the what the heck would happen to you if you tr- actually That's swallow it. Yeah, I would say three quarters of a million is a scant compensation for the uh, what this guy suffered. Yeah, and now, of course... The restaurant and the casino are both, you know, trying to foist blame around and, you know, hey, we shouldn't have to pay this. It should be on these guys. I mean, and it's obvious what happened. I mean, somebody came in to do proper draft line service. Yay. Good. Clean taps. Awesome. We like clean taps and clean lines. And then they proceeded to dick chimp the whole procedure by leaving caustic in the lines and not clearing and flushing everything. Now, I've known some places where they do this where uh, for reasons of, oh, it saves us money. They will try and flush the lines with beer, like they'll rehook the keg up and flush the line out with beer instead of flushing out with water. But that's not what you need to do. You need to neutralize it. So you need to get rid of all the caustic and make sure that you actually have it out before you get any beer in there. It's also the reason why usually beer beer line solutions are a different color than beer. But in this particular case, somebody done messed up and they done messed up bad so the takeaway here is if you're using caustic which i don't but if you do that's your choice just treat it right be smart people pay attention to what you're doing that is some bad stuff and you can really get hurt badly yeah yeah internal internal chemical burns are not fun so last story of the the day is good old roger Pratt's a a very famous old school British beer writer, kind of right up in there, the the realm of like Michael Jackson. He wrote an article in the the Morning Star Advertiser uh, that basically said a camera must embrace craft keg beer. So, Dan, you want to give people a background on camera? Camera is a British organization. Camera stands for the Campaign for Real Ale, and what they uh, were. Uh, dedicated to and still are pretty much is preserving traditional English styles of beer and particularly the serving of them in a cask, uh, no additional pressure, and they can get pretty intense about wanting to have everything their way. And Roger is kind of thinking that maybe if this organization wants to survive, it needs to modernize a bit. Yeah, and so... I mean, Cameron really started because they wanted to try and preserve real ale. Real ale was a thing that was going out of out of fashion in the UK, being replaced by keg beer everywhere. And because it turns out, you know, like actually doing cask properly and maintaining a pub is a giant pain in the butt. And people weren't doing it very well. And brewers found that they could get better, more reliable service by switching over to kegs. But of course, that's it sort of loses something in the translation. And so Cameron came along and started to fight the good fight for preserving cascale but they've also been notoriously sort of hard-nosed about things i think they finally came around to accepting cask breathers a couple of years ago uh, cask breathers are little valves that uh, basically are on-demand co2 valves that will flood the the cask with atmospheric levels of co2 every time a pint's drawn and what that does is allows the cask to last longer traditional casks will basically need to be served in about three days in order to have the beer in top shape 
So cameras been kind of hard nosed over the years about this sort of stuff, and they certainly, given their founding, treat keg beer as the enemy. And Roger's point was that well, yeah, but now we have all these craft beer companies out there that exist because we did all this hard work to keep good beer alive, but they're not doing cask, and we're not recognizing their efforts, and we're not uh, sort of modernizing with our audience and the beer drinking population. So if, to his mind, if Cameron really wants to survive and stay relevant, they need to start embracing the keg beer culture of the craft world over there in the UK. Now, I know that you have mixed feelings about Yeah, that, I do, it? actually. I mean... In one regard, uh, I totally agree with Roger. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, camera does need to embrace uh, the styles of beer that they love, maybe served a different way. On the other hand, though, you have to question then if that is still camera. Uh, They are all about the traditional way of serving beer, so maybe they don't need to embrace it. On the other hand, <laughs> that's three hands now, right? Uh, on the other hand... Yep. Well, you're getting down yeah, to your right. toes, buddy. If, if they don't embrace this style of beer, is there enough interest in real ale and the way they like to see it served to really justify the existence of this organization anymore? I don't know. It's a, it's a really tough question. Uh, I have felt in the past that camera has been just a bit too... I guess maybe snooty, I don't know if that's the right word, but that's the word I'll use, about uh, the purity of their mission and what they feel as beer should be. Uh, On the other hand, somebody's got to defend that, right? Yeah, but, you know, uh, times change, people change. I mean, I think it depends upon what you want to consider your mission, right? Is the mission good beer or is the mission cask beer? And I know that was a big sticking point for a long time for camera where a lot of the older uh, gents in the organization poo-pooed anything that wasn't cask as not being good beer. Yeah. So, I mean, to the point, to the point where the good beer guide that camera produces every year that uh, Roger just stepped down as the editor for their whole guiding principle for the longest time for that thing was basically like, the only pubs they would recognize that they put in there were ones that served good cask beer. It didn't matter anything else. It was, do you have good cask? That was what good beer meant for the good inclusion in the good beer guide. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to be real curious to see if uh, Roger has any sway over this and exactly where it goes. But enough yep. of all these downers, man. I think it's time we uh, finish up these beers and we head over to the lab. It's been way too long since we've been in the lab. And we got a keg purge experiment to tell people about. Yep. Yes, yes we, we do. do. So stick around. We'll be right back after this message. And we'll tell you all about what may be the best way to keg your beer. Are you a fan of chocolate, but not of the mess that comes from using cacao nibs? Chalaka is your answer. A favorite of Tim Matthews at Oscar Blues, it contains only cacao and water. Chalaka is aseptically packaged, so you don't have to worry about any bugs coming along uninvited. Using only sustainably sourced cacao, every bottle of Chalaka you buy helps regrow the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru. Ask for Chalaka wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Thank <laughs> you. 
Hey there, we have moved over into the lab with our lab coats, the Bunsen burners, and all that other stuff going on. Oh, yeah. There's, uh, there's Drew's Jacob's Ladder going again. So the experiment we're going to talk about this time is uh, one that really has a lot of relevance to some of the other things we've been doing recently, talking about Brutan B to help prevent oxidation of your beer. And this experiment was the best way to keg your beer to uh, keep it in as good a shape for as long as possible and help prevent the uh, deleterious effects of oxygen on your beer. You want to run down what happened? Yeah. So again, here's the idea is that, you know, we talk about oxygen as the enemy of beer, particularly once you're in the package and fermentation is done. And well, so what's the best way to, you know, deal with, you know, your keg, you know, since I'm going to assume a good portion of us are keggers. So a lot of brewers will basically flush their kegs by, you know, injecting CO2, pulling the pressure relief valve, and doing that three to seven times, depending upon how persnickety you are. I've always advocated instead for filling the keg up with a liquid, like, say, a sanitizer, and pushing the sanitizer out of the keg with the CO2. And the idea is that, you know, since water is incompressible, you know, you're not going to have extra oxygen entrained or entrapped in there. And the CO2 is basically going to be be able to fill up the entire space or the vast majority of the space and get you to a very low oxygen in your headspace of the keg. So what we did was we had the Igors actually split off and do a couple of experiments. Uh, the one that we're going to do today or that we're going to talk about today is we had brewers compare a beer that they brewed and kegged in two separate ways. One in a keg with absolutely no purge done. So basically they cleaned it, they opened it, and they filled the keg. And then the other one where they do the full purge, what we call the full purge, which is this push out with CO2. We had three Igor's return uh, results for that. Uh, Tim Schrover, Eric Stonefer, and Jason James. And they add, between the three of them, 60 tasters. 60, count them, 60. Yep, 60 tasters. And out of that 60, if we're just doing the naive sort of aggregation thing that, that we've been doing, which we're still trying to work on a different way of doing, but if we did the 60 aggregate tasters to look at like a successful p-value in terms of a p-value that offers some level of significance, we would need 27 tasters to be able to successfully identify the, the difference between the two. Turns out that between the three trials and the 60 tasters, we had 29 do a successful uh, identification. Looking at the three different trials, we can walk through real quick. Tim Schrover had the one negative result where he had 12 tasters, only three of which were able to successfully identify the beer, you know, which puts the p-value at like 0.82, right, which is well above our standard of 0.05. Eric Stonefer had 13 tasters, and nine of them were able to successfully identify the beer, which is a p-value of like 0.009, so well below. And then Jason James was a real rock star. He gathered 35 tasters, and of those 35... 17 were able to identify the different keg. And so that ended up being a p-value of 0.044. Now, looking at it all together, they all did you know some hoppy beers because what, the one thing that we asked them to do was, okay, make a beer that is a hoppy IPA with a lot of uh, aromatic components to it. And the reason for that was, one, we like to have the Igors be able to play, but also... In general, hoppy beers are going to expose this level of oxidation or damaging effect of oxygen faster, in theory, right? The the hop flavor, the hop aroma will dissipate quicker. So, uh, Denny, when you looked through the results, did you see anything that may, that stood out to you? You know, 
in spite of the fact that we got a you know fairly positive result on this one, I'm curious about why we had that one tasting session that was a, a real outlier with pretty much different results. Uh, one interesting mm-hmm. comment I thought from Jason James, uh, he said, I thought it was pretty easy to find the odd beer out. However, some people were getting angry that they couldn't find it. Uh, and I th- feel like that's interesting when his results come in with 49% uh, successful tastings. Uh, that really shows how close it was on his. So we have one that's very, very positive, Eric's. We have Jason's that are kind of like just right on the line. And then we had uh, Tim with his results, which uh, were kind of negative. So overall, yeah, aggregate, it was pretty darn close, uh, but individual tests swung all over the place. Uh, this is one where I'm willing to say, yeah, I think that the keg purge method probably does work better than other methods, but it's close enough, so you guys need to try it and see what you think. Well, and we want to get more data, and we're going to do uh, more comparisons as well, but I mean... What I what I did think was interesting was you know Tim who was the one negative result of the three, he came back and it, we asked the Igors to always give us a reflection on what they thought about the experiment or what they 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 were thinking, and his reflection was like it, literally what he says here is I was shocked by the results of my homebrew club triangle test. I had tasted these samples poured by myself into clear glasses and my bias must have taken over because I was a thousand percent sure I could pick the different sample right every time. After tasting them in glasses, and sure enough, I couldn't identify them poured by somebody else into opaque cups. So he said, my data was not included in the in the test results because I'm tainted. Uh, once again, showing that experimenter's bias does play in here. But for our two successful results, so Jason's, who you were saying, you know, was 49% uh, successful. I mean, remember, you know, that's a, a good distance up from 33%, which would be truly random. So, I mean... To me, that's still a good result, and it's still under the line of what of the p value that we consider as significant. Yeah, and remember how close you are to that line doesn't doesn't mean it's better or worse. But Jason had done a juicy IPA, one of your favorite things in the entire universe, and what he had said was he is sold on this technique, that he actually really enjoys it, and that he's going to be using this technique in the future. I mean, it's an easy technique. And to my mind, it's it's a no-brainer to protect your beers. Uh, and over with Eric, his reflections basically said, uh, this was really cool and extremely validating to me. I produced this beer in a way that explicitly limited my variability as much as humanly possible. Uh, and he said, you know, he did it as a single batch and it was co-fermented, et cetera, et cetera. And he says, which basically meant to me that my super anal kegging practices actually make a significant difference. And remember, Eric is the one who had the, the largest positive result. Uh, Plus, the experiment had a lot of folks at the meeting wanting to go to my keg method of keg purging, which I certainly don't hate as an idea. So that was uh, that was kind of nifty to see. But it, again, really nice to see like here with these hoppy beers that I mean, we do have a general indication that at least between no purge and full purge, there is a there is a impact. And of course, now the next question to answer is, well, what about full purge versus the purge cycle? Right. Yeah. Yeah, because that in theory that should be closer. That should be harder to detect. Yeah, you know, um, it, it it's going to be real interesting to see where this goes. But I think that uh, I'm going to be using this method at least on my next few batches and uh, see if I can if I can discern a difference from it. Yeah, and the other part was 
looking at the successful results, what the tasters actually noted was one that the tasters who did the successful identification all preferred the, the purge beer for these IPAs and that they really felt like the total purge beers were ones that were more hoppy and had more punch and better aromas. Right. When, which is so, exactly what you, you would expect if your uh, if your hops and malt uh, aren't getting oxidized and losing all their aroma. So there you go. Give it a try. Next time you're kegging a batch of beer, fill that keg all the way up with sanitizer, push it out, and uh, in spite of the fact you have to open the lid to get more beer in there and it's going to let some oxygen in, you'll be better off doing it that way than you would uh, just pulling the release valve a few times at the end of the procedure like I do and so many other people do. Well, and also don't forget, I mean, you can rack in via, you know, say the liquid port. If you're, if you're sure that you have no hop debris, that's going to get across. Uh, you could totally do that in order to prevent, you know, extra oxygen ingress. But hey, guys, what do you think? Did we do something wrong here? Did we do something right? Is this a method that you think is going to be useful to you in your brewery? Or is this a method that you already use? Or am I completely, you know, well, that too. But, you know, I think the other questions are still valid. Yep. Okay, give it a try. Let us know what you think. If you're already doing it, let us know what you think. And at this point, I think it's time to move over to the lounge and uh, talk to Seth Klon of Mecca Grade Estate Malt about his operation. Stick around, we're going to be right back with that. Y-Yeast has been producing premium liquid yeast for over 30 years and continues to provide homebrewers with the same quality, purity, and reliability as the professionals. The third quarter private collection emulates the rich traditions and characteristics of Belgian-style beers from Flanders to Florinville. 3739 Flanders Gold Nail, 3789 Trappist Style Blend, and 3822 Belgian Dark Ale are worthy choices for creating the diverse styles of Belgium this summer. And congratulations to the winners of the Y-East Experimental Brewing Belgian Summer Contest, Jordan Knudsen, Nikki Forster, and Chris Kepler. You can find their winning recipes at yeastlab.com and experimentalbrew.com. So go get those Y-East seasonal yeasts and brew your own winners. I've got a comfy chair that I'm sitting in. This is my best lounge singer impression because we're in the lounge. Jeez. I was expecting something more like Bill Murray, you know? <laughs> Strangers well, yeah, in the no, night. I'll get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. That's enough of that. They're not paying us to sit. I can see why. We are here in the lounge. It is the comfy chair time. It is time for us to sit down and talk to, uh, well, you know, a good friend of the podcast and uh, for the FTC out there, yes, uh, Mecca Grade Malt is a sponsor, but no, they didn't pay for this segment. We just actually really kind of dig their products, and Denny had a fun experience with Seth recently, so hey, let's go and recap that. So, uh, Denny, why don't you kick us into this uh, into this interview and give us a little background? Yeah, um, Mecca Grade Estate Malt has been a sponsor now for uh, a while, and uh, Drew and I have both had a chance to brew with their malts, and we both love them. 
But uh, when the eclipse came around back in August, Seth Klon, uh, the guy who's the brain behind Mecha Grade Estate Malt, decided that he wanted to have an event there at uh, the farm. And so I went over for it, got a chance to take a look at their operation. Uh, and it's, it's really very, very cool. Seth has a totally different idea about how to make malt. Uh, based on the fact that he started doing it in his garage as a home brewer, they grow the malt with with parts with parts drug out of the goodwill, yes that's right the man guy's very creative as farmers have to be so they have about a thousand acres there they grow barley wheat and rye and they malt it themselves and it's the fact that they grow these varieties that uh, really makes them different from most of the other maltsters that are out there so Kick back, grab yourself a beer, unless you're driving, and listen to Seth talk about uh, what they do, how they do it, and where they plan to head in the future. To the farm! Hey, everybody. This is Denny. And on the phone with us today is Seth Klon of Mecca Grade Estate Malt. Uh, how you doing, Seth? Doing really good. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing great, man, and I'm really excited to talk to you about your operation over there. Um, yeah, I, you know, I was over there uh, last month for the eclipse. Wonderful event, great time, um, and I learned so much about what you're doing and why it's special. But before we get into that, um, I know that you guys have been there for a long time, so I'd like you to tell us a little bit about the history of the farm. Yeah, so the farm here has been in our family since 1905. And so when you're here for the Eclipse event, we had actually Cynthia Garden was in the original barn. Um, and so we put 1905 up on the side of the barn. They came over um, from the Willamette Valley. They had a nursery over there. We still have all the old family records and whatnot. And that's actually been really important because here, that's my next project to work on. Um, I'm going to get everything certified as a century farm. Um, so we've actually been just haven't had a chance to sit down and do it, but we need all the records to prove that there's been a family member here farming, you know, every single year um, since we've been in operation. So we've been farming this for, like I said, like 1905, um, we've done a lot of different things. Um, but yeah, agriculture, especially in our area, has really changed over time um, due to irrigation. I know um, my family, when they first came over here, uh, they were farming everything dry lands. I mean, just kind of waiting on Mother Nature to give them rain. And you know, back then, you know, 1920s and whatnot, there was a lot more rainfall here. Uh, we'd get you know anywhere from 15, you know, about 15 inches to 20 inches of rainfall a year, which is enough to grow um, grow certain crops. Um, but you know, the depression hit and climate change has you know happened and whatnot. And we now. Um, you know, we get here, I think about eight inches of rainfall a year. <laughs> and so <laughs> and that's only in the winter time. So, you know, when we plant crops in the spring, we don't get any rain at all. And so we're completely dependent on irrigation over here. Um, but what that makes is a really unique environment because, uh, since we're so dry, we're, we're considered to be in the high desert over here in central Oregon. As we're so dry, we almost have no disease pressure on any of our plants. And so our area with, you know, the introduction of um, irrigation in the 1950s is really transformed in this, into this kind of oasis for specialty seed crops. 
I would imagine it's a whole lot different now than it was back in 1905, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just, I was making some coffee in there in, in, in the tasting room here, and I remember um, before the eclipse deal, I put up a bunch of, uh, like a slideshow, a bunch of old family photos. And I just look at that when I go over in there and look at the old photos, and I just I don't envy those guys at all um, for what they had to do. I mean, sticking rock by hand, all those volcanic rocks, grubbing out sand or sagebrush by hand. It was just a lot of work, a lot of work. It's and, hard to uh, imagine how they even could do that, you know? Well, there wasn't a lot of other things to do. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it was a lot of work. And you'll see it. Like I mean, you'll be up on the farmland here. And if you get much off the beaten path, it's just desert. And it's funny, you'll see, like, we have these giant um, um, piles of rock that are just piled up all around the farm going back hundreds of years. And at one point or another, you know, one of our ancestors touched one of those and put them in a pile. And it's just the work The work never stops here. And that's the thing. It's just this constant, constant connection to, you know, everyone that's gone before you. And there's a real real appreciation for what they've had to do. I mean, gosh, it was, I, I couldn't even imagine. <laughs> no, man. Yeah. Now, one thing that I thought was interesting was uh, the the name of your farm and company. Because when I heard Mechagrade, I assumed it was, you know, some obscure reference to, uh, you know, the quality of the malt, like being from Mecca, stuff like mm-hmm. that. And, uh, you know, and I guess that that does have somewhat of a bearing on it, but you were telling me that there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah, and, and it's supposed to, so I'm, I'm glad. I think that's what most people pick up on. It's kind of a play on words in a way. I know at one time, uh, like sometimes, you know, Bend, um, right down the road from us, Bend, Oregon, is described as like this beer mecca because of its, you know, low population and the amount of craft breweries we have here, especially good ones. Um, but, you know, there was a town called Mecca um, right below us, um, we're up on a, a, a flat called Agency Plain. So if you're driving from Portland to Bend and you go through Madras, you kind of get up on top of a flat. Our farm's right up there. But down below, about a 1,000 feet below us, was this little old town called Mecca. And that's actually kind of where all of our, you know, kind of on a side note, that's, that's where we get all of our weird malt names. They're all named after old ghost towns that are around us. And a lot of them, um, a lot of them popped up around the, the construction of a railroad. At the time, turn of the century, 1900s, there was two railroad tycoons that were trying to get and build a railroad to bend Oregon very first. And so there was a thing called the the Deschutes River Railroad War. And these guys were building a railroad on either side of the Deschutes River all the way down from the Columbia to get to bend first because that's where all the timber was going to be at. Well, when they had everything surveyed, they figured the site where... That there was a, there's a certain site once they could build a railroad to after that was going to be pretty much smooth sailing to get to Bend as far as track construction and they called that place Mecca because of that. So we've always had this this little place behind our house and I thought, man, you know, at the time I that's a really cool name, Mecca Grade, and the grade that goes down to it is an actual grade. It's like three <laughs> miles long and it goes all the way down to the bottom of this canyon. But man, if I ever had something. Um, like, you know, business or like if I ever started farming on my own, it'd be really cool to name it after that. And so it's always been in the back of my mind. It's kind of a neat plan word, meaning high quality. And uh, it, it all kind of came together. Yeah, man, really, when yeah. when you told me that, I was just like blown away. And uh, <laughs> when when I explained that to Drew, he said, well, you know, I have like railroading in my family history. So that's always what I assumed it meant. And it's like, oh, you oh. jerk. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, yeah. 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 <laughs> so how did you get into 
tumulting, man. What what made you decide that this was something you wanted to do? Well, I, I got into it from like the homebrewing um, perspective, I guess. I I started homebrewing. I was looking back at some of my first recipes and my my log books for almost a little over five years ago, almost six years ago now. And when I got into it, I did a couple, you know, I did a couple extract recipes, and then I really caught the bug, and I'm like, man, I want to go to all grain. And so when I got into that, I really went deep. Like I was already planning out like my electric comm system and <laughs> all of this stuff. And, and I get, I get really techy about all this stuff and I like the gadget part of it too. But I, um, I got into, um, home malting. And the thing was at the time I noticed myself always using like, you know, 5%. I really liked the hard red spring wheat malt. I don't even know if it's hard red spring. I think it's just hard um, red winter wheat malt from Wireman. Um, and I've used that like at 5% in all of my recipes for head retention and whatnot. But that's one thing we were growing on the farm at the time. And it's, it, we were growing harder at spring wheat. And it was always this kind of specialty crop we used as a rotational crop. And I thought, man, I mean, I, I, I could probably figure out how to malt this. And then, then I got going down that whole rabbit hole of, you know, trying to figure <laughs> out how to malt. And at the time, for a, for a home brewer trying to do it in his garage, there really wasn't a lot of good information online. And there still really isn't that much. And, and it took us, I mean, soon after that, I kind of started convincing Dad. I'm like, look, we could really make this a serious thing if we could figure it out. Um, you know, so I was malting on my garage. I was, I was doing it on like a, on a table, um, really shallow pans. Um, and then I ended up switching over to a, uh, <laughs> like a, a sauerkraut mixer. So it looks like a, <laughs> like a rotary drum, like that it could, you could turn cement with, but it's food. Oh drink. yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. So I, I got one of those and I was, you know, using it kind of as a drum, like a, like a, uh, what is it? Like, um, I do my germination in there and my steeping. Um, and then I found, I went down to Habitat for, for Humanity and got like a uh, old upright, um, freezer and I converted into a kiln. And so I had to kind of teach myself all this, by myself, and wow. then I, I got a kind of a knowledge of it. I was up at the Pacific Homebrewers Conference here, um, what was it, this, this last one, and I gave a talk on it here. So if anyone's ever interested in, you know, kind of how to start as a homebrewer, you can either get a hold of me, like as far as home malting. Um, there's a couple other really good resources online. Um, but the one, it's funny, the one that's really good is called, um, it's a blog called Brewing Beer the Hard Way. And it's a guy up in British Columbia, and he has gone through and figured out how to make all of these different types of malt, like honey malt. Like, what is that? Yeah. How does this happen? And um, if you ever, you know, want to reach out to someone that knows, kind of like, I look at that thing, and I'm, I'm like, wow. Um, so, <laughs> so one more time, yeah. what was the name of that book? It's called, it's not a, it's a blog that's online called, yeah, it's a blog and it's called Brewing Beer the Hard Way. Okay. And, uh, and it's, he's done all of his own home malting. Um, he has YouTube videos on how to do some of this stuff. It's all based on it, like doing it in an oven, but he's made crystal malt, caramel malt, honey malt. Um, there was a really big, really big brewery and I I won't say there is, it got a hold of me down in um, California and they were wondering how, what honey malt was and how it was made. And they got a hold of me and I'm like, I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> but, and no one really does. Um, but I said, you know, go to this website and sure enough, it was there. And he kind of, he kind of cracked the code on it a little bit, but that's the thing. Um, every malt house kind of has their own 
you know, secret blend of herbs and spices, everyone's machinery is different. Everyone's process is different. And uh, what we end up is, you know, with all these different kinds of malts, they're all, they all have kind of have similar names and stuff, but you know, all malt isn't the same. So you decided then that you wanted to get into commercial malting because you just weren't working hard enough, just farming. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> we, <laughs> we started like five years ago and it was, that's the thing. I was like trying to convince dad. It's like, well, we, we could do this. I mean, we're growing, we're growing everything already. We weren't growing barley at the time and that was a thing, but because we're in such a unique area, we, that was like kind of the last thing we're really worried about. Right. was like the actual growing of the grain. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and as it turns out, I mean, we knew that we were kind of in a unique area for grain spike, specialty grain production. We were doing it with the hard red spring wheat. Um, most of that wheat, and like as another side note, most of that wheat we grow for high protein, which is kind of frowned upon and is really frowned upon in malting barley. But we grow it to, to be high protein because the higher the protein, the higher the gluten content. Mm-hmm. And most of our wheat is sold to Japan and it's used for noodle making. Cool. So they want the higher gluten for higher elasticity for like, you know, for, for making noodles. Right. Um, so, and we're, we're, we're in a unique area where we can actually at certain points of the year, we're injecting liquid nitrogen onto our fields through pivot irrigation to boost those protein levels. So, um, you know, the, the, the barley is actually a pretty low input crop for us. We want to have low protein. So we're not having to put on as much fertilizer. We don't have as much inputs. And, um, as long as we can keep the water going to it and keep it, keep it happy, it's worked out really, really well for us. So you grow barley, wheat, and rye, right? Is yeah. anything yep. else? Uh, there's some things kind of in the works. I'm thinking um, about getting my hands on some spelt oh, cool. um, and growing that. And I'm looking kind of at some more of these kind of heirloom grains. I don't know if I'd go and try to get a source on some emmert um, spelt. The rye has been really popular. Um, and... That, that's the trick about the one thing I'm, I'm also looking at is corn and trying to track down non-genetically modified corn is pretty tough. I mean, 95% of it, um, you know, in the U.S. Is, is all those kind of varieties. The other trick to grow corn, because I, I really want to do, I want to make corn malt, and I think it would be really awesome to have it in like a pre-prohibition Pilsner. Um, <laughs> hardly, hardly anyone is malting corn, which is crazy. And, you know, at some point, like, we know, like, if we got going and we're making corn malt, it'd be really easy for someone in the Midwest to do it or something like that. So that's another consideration. Is like everything we do um, is, is geared towards, um, you know, making it essentially unreproducible outside of our own farm and our own operation. Well, um, and that, that's one yeah. thing I wanted to get into, man, because yeah. you have a real different kind of, of plan with uh, with your company than a lot of other people because you grow your own grain that you malt, and I don't know many other people doing that. Um, what, yeah. what really makes your malt so different from everybody else's? Oh, gosh. <laughs> a lot of things. And that was one of the things, like, I think I, I got off on a tangent there when you were asking, you know, why we wanted to get into this whole thing. Um, there really what like, there really is no reason to be malting for us, or this was the thought, if we were growing the same variety as everyone else, um, if we were malting it the same way. So everything we do has to be unique. And that it's, it goes 
you know, we can't do anything about the family history. It is what it is. I mean, that's a part of it. It's being here for so long. It's knowing what we do as farmers. But it's also the varieties that we select, how we malt it, um, our unique climate, everything down to the bag. I mean, I think we're the only people that have a fully compostable bag, for example. Um, so that is too cool, be, man. Yeah, it has to be every single part has to be considered. And a lot of that, is, as far as like varietal selection considerations, um, we can't, I mean, it. we rolled the dice on full pint. Like, I don't know if... You, I, I think I got that across, but like in, in full pint, I, as far as the, the variety, it's an, it's an Oregon State variety. Um, we rolled the dice on it. We didn't know how it would do. We knew it was a, a short-statured variety. It's the only variety of barley we grow, so it'd be like everything we do is kind of almost like an it's modeled after an estate vineyard and winery. So we grow everything on site. We, we, we malt it here. Um, and it'd be like if someone... Uh, all they did, all their big focus was on, like, they made this small family farm, grew, and made wine out of the best Pinot Noir they could make. And that's kind of the whole, that, that is the whole model of what we're doing. So we focus on one variety that's full pint. Um, and full pint is a real challenge, come to find out, um, growing it outside of our area. It's got this thing where, um, you know, it, it's called, we call it being rank. And so if it gets any kind of rainfall throughout the year, think about growing it like it's been tried to be grown in the valley. Um, there's a lot more rain in the Willamette Valley throughout the year. And so if it's kind of, you know, humid over there throughout the growing season and it gets a couple rain um, showers going into the, into the harvest, the stuff will actually start sprouting in the head, in the field, which ruins it for malting. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's, it's a really, it's, it's one of these varieties we didn't know when we made the selection. We did it because we're big. We're, I went to school at Oregon State. We're big Oregon State barley breeding program supporters. Um, and it was one of these things that we knew because of its parentage that it ha- was going to have this unique flavor. And it was one of the first I did a test plot with it. And as soon as I got it into the combine, I was running it back in five-gallon buckets to the garage, malting it and trying to make beer out of it because no, at that time, this variety was sitting on a shelf for 10 years. No one had made malt or anything with it. And so I wanted to be the very first person to make a beer with full pint malt. Wow. Yeah. So why don't you go through the different varieties of malts that you make? Um, so it's all one variety as far as the barley goes. It's all full pint. But when we go and we malt it, um, our steeping and our germination schedule really aren't that different. And if anyone doesn't know, um, you know, malting, there's three step, steps. There's there's steeping where we wet the grain up to 45% water or moisture, I should say. Germination for us is about four and a half days where, where we let the plant grow. Um, and it helps break down that kind of hard starchy protein matrix into, into free carbohydrates. That takes about like four to four, four to four and a half days. And then kilning is where we develop, you know, all of our um, all of our flavors and colors in each malt. So our most popular malt, and then I was just looking at the numbers the other day, about three quarters of what we produce is Pelton malt. So Pelton malt is our Pilsner style malt, and it's really low kilned. It's very highly modified, but it's uh, super light in color. We're talking anywhere from like one and a half SRM up to 1.8. 
And then the next mall we make after that, I mean, with, when, when you're getting, before I go on with like the next one, we do that because we're trying to make like a really rustic, um, a rustic Pilsner style mall. We want, um, you know, notes of like, you know, almost hay or alfalfa in that. Um, and we don't want any of the, we don't want to kiln that off. So that all has to happen at really, really low temperatures. About the hottest we get in the kiln um, for the last, you know, maybe an hour and a half, two hours, is 180 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, it just doesn't get that hot in there at all. So we do everything when we kiln it really low, really slow. We're trying to preserve any enzymes in there um, that we can. And, uh, yeah, um, that's that's... Like I said, that's our most popular popular malt we sell because it's just so different. Um, yeah, man, it's it's really yeah. an amazing uh, version of Pills malt. I just absolutely love it. Yeah, and that's the nice thing about being able to call things, you know, uh, especially name them after old American ghost towns around us, is it doesn't really lock us in to being like um, to being a carbon copy of another malting company. It's like it, that's. It's like if you have Pelton, it, that is its unique flavor. Um, if you want Weirman, um, um Pilsner malt, buy Weirman Pilsner malt. It's a great <laughs> malt. But we didn't want to be a copy of something either. We couldn't be. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they 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 already make Weirman malt. Why should you? Yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, like, there's a lot of there's a lot of good malt out there already, and so that's one thing we're always conscious of when we're going through this. Is like. Everything we do has to be unique in some way, and a lot of that has to do with flavor. Um, I mean, we could tell the greatest story of all time, um, but at the end of the day, it has to have some impact in your beer, and it has to taste really good, too. And so we're always keeping that in the back of our mind. We keep, I mean, you were in the grain room. Um, we keep samples of uh, a lot of commercial, of malt that's already out there and we're always calibrating we're always tasting against uh we're fortunate that hardly anyone else uh grows and malts full pint and so when you're starting with a different variety from the very beginning when you kiln it it's going to end up with you know different flavors there um and on top of that our 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 malter is the only one like it in the world so you're going to be developing different flavors in that as well so that was always the thought is like yeah if someone goes and they they build a malt house right across the field from us. Um, you know, they're never they even if, you know, they had the same variety, they had the same machinery, they might not even end up with the same style of malt. It would have to be a pretty, you know, a pretty extraordinary circumstances where someone could replicate what we're doing. Right. So yeah. then going up the color scale, the the next up the scale is your Lamanta, right? Yeah, and that's about and we everything the thought is what we do is that all the different malts are all multiple, are all double um, SRMs of one another, or multiplications. Um, so Lamont is three, Venora is six, and then um, Metolius is twelve. That's kind of where they start at. And there's a little bit of a range in there. Um, but my thought when I was designing these, I was trying to design them kind of from a home brewer perspective. Was like, you know, if say you don't like all of, like the that grassiness or that you know what's going on in, in Pelton. Maybe you still want a little bit of it in there, but you wanted to split the difference. Then you don't. You could maybe use Lamanta at a certain percentage, and you could you could split the difference that way. That way, my thought when in beer making, all my recipes are really simple. I try to stick with, you know, maybe four malts max, if that. A lot of times, I'm only just using Pilsner malt 
or, or, or Pilsner-style malt and then maybe a wheat in there. Um, but my thought is less is more. So if someone really had to do it, they could use two of our malts, and that would be that. Um, but what we've seen, and I, we, when, we've, when we've had this kind of escape out in the wild, we've seen brewers go and they'll use Pelton like at, you know, um, two-thirds of the recipe or two-thirds of the grain bill. And then maybe they'll throw in something on the other end of the spectrum, like Venora Metolius. And you get some really crazy flavor combinations when you do that. So after we started hearing people do that, I kind of threw my hands up in there and said, hey, um, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> 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 and, and we're just, that's the thing is like, we're really receptive to like, and, and really curious about how people are using, using our product. I mean, and that's the other thing too. And a lot of that is, you know, our work with the home brewing community. I'm still a home brewer myself. Um, have people email us all the time being like, Hey, can you send us out a bag of malt? And uh, we do. And it, it, and home brewers and stuff, or, or if they're close to one of the suppliers we work with, we direct them there. Um, but we're, we're really keen on the feedback that we get from, um, from the home brewers that we work with too in the home brewing community, which has been really, really, fortunately, really, really supportive of what we do. I got a batch of my IPA going right now with uh, Lamanta, the Rimrock, which is your rye malt, mm-hmm. the Wikiup, which is the wheat malt, and some Opal, which is kind of like your version of a crystal malt. Yeah, it's kind of this weird hybrid of, of a, it's like kind of like a crystallized caramel malt, or we call it an opalized caramel malt or whatever. But yeah, it takes like three days to kill that one. It's a real pain in the butt. <laughs> 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 and we've only, we've made it like one time because like it, it, you use it in a recipe at like two to 5%, you know? And so one batch of that for us, I mean, a batch for us is, uh, 12 tons of finished malt, so like 24,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. So you imagine a lot of those pallets kicking around for a while just because it's such a specialty use product. Um, but yeah, we've, we've even had, we originally made that because there was a couple um, twin sisters that we work with down um, um, south of San Francisco. They have a distillery and they were really wanting some kind of a, a t- when I pitched them the idea of this toffee malt, um, they were like, yes. And they were kind of waiting for us to do it. So they're using it, um, at a really large percentage, um, as part of their single, single malt whiskey project. Um, so, and the thing is, we're not going to be able to taste it for another, you know, probably two years. So (laughs) that must be frustrating. (laughs) (laughs) That's where, you know, and that's where a lot of our malt goes to. And we kind of take it as a compliment. I mean, when we first started going, we were only making, you know, 850 pounds a week. We had a little prototype malter that does like essentially the same thing as the big one, but everything we do is first come first serve. So uh, when we got going, we started working with Paul Arney at the Yale Apothecary from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And then he told us right from the beginning, he's like, Hey, if we can make this work. We're just going to switch over to all your malt. And so eventually, you know, we started making really good malt with that machine and he started buying more and more. And then it was going down to a buddy of his down in Napa Valley. And then all the malt was gone. And then we just kind of had to just, you know, we, we weren't taking on any new customers. We're keeping them going. And a lot of what Paul does is it goes into a barrel. So there's um, beer coming out now that was made off of our little machine, the malt was, two years ago. Wow. That's just going to market now. So it took him that long to fill up this whole pipeline. And even today, um, we work with, because our malt's more like a luxury product, we work with 
you know, a lot of barrel programs, um, high-end whiskey, people were putting stuff away for the long haul and there's just all this stuff in the pipeline that we just don't get a taste and that's fine. We can be patient. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, man, maybe you can. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that, it's cool that that's, I, I, I dig that people are using it for that. Cause that's what it's for. It's, 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 it's a real special thing. Yeah, it really is. Mm-hmm. So you were telling me when I was over there that because of the fact that you kind of had to teach yourself how to malt, Mm-hmm. That your malt house is a way different design than anybody else's. Yeah, there's a lot of if you think about like remember when you know when home brewing first became legalized and home brewers could actually collaborate and even it's going on today like with 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 what you and Drew are working on especially like all these old wives tales uh-huh. um, about, <laughs> right. about about brewing and stuff and we're still figuring stuff out in home brewing today. Think about, you know, who is doing malting on a small scale? No one. And so if you're going to start from scratch, it's like, where do you even begin? And as far as old wives' tales, oh, my gosh, malt is is full of them. And so I think, fortunately for us, not having a lot of that knowledge, I mean, we ended up finding and going to a school up in Canada that taught us, you know, how the big maltsters do things. Um, but being able to kind of start from like, how the hell am I going to do this and trying to figure it on our own and really starting from a home brewer slash farmer perspective, which is kind of odd, um, from the biological side of things, um, we were able just to kind of take a, kind of open everything up and take more of a pragmatic look or approach to it. One of the things like, as an example is steeping, um, uh, as part of like that. Steeping is the first part of the malting process. So what you're trying to do is take grain, you're trying to wet it. So um, you you can't do it all at once. It takes place over, you know, up to a 48-hour period. There's different temperatures you want to keep everything at. But what you're trying to do is get that grain, when it comes off of our field, it's 8% moisture, so it's like bone dry. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're trying to get it up to 45% moisture. What a lot of... what standard process is you put it in a giant vat it looked like a conical fermenter um you fill it full of water you you know you boil it in around with with, not boil it but you you roil it around with oxygen and whatnot and then you drain it off you fill it up again then you drain it off and you do all these steps and so i'm thinking when i'm doing this i'm like if it's taking you know how much water can we just spray it on somehow and yeah, people go, no, 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 no. People have tried that before. And that's what a lot of things we hear, we heard when we were doing ours, bouncing ideas off people is like, no, 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 that's not going to work. And come to find out in our system, um, we're able to move. We have really shallow beds. We're able to move everything through the system. Um, and uh, we're able to do a moving steep. So we're, we're only spraying on the water that that grain needs. So it really cuts down on our water use. And I would um, assume that yeah. that's really important when you're like having to bring in all your water and it, it's expensive. Yeah, we're still hooked up to uh, municipal water and we're about 10 miles north of Madras. And so our water is actually Opal Springs. It comes out of that aquifer and all of Madras is. So if you've ever had like... Um, Earth to O bottled water. I don't know. I know how far you can get it. Pretty much in all in Oregon, but we get um, the water is a big part of the malt um, flavor too. You wouldn't think about it because most of it gets kilned off. But I've actually had malt where I can taste 
chlorine in it from from oh. other mohawks. Oh, jeez, that's not a good <laughs> thing to have, man. Yeah, I mean it's it's there, so it's like, and it's it's a it's a component of it. So if you're thinking about you know putting a bunch of grain in a huge vat of water that flavor of the water is going to get into that malt. And so when we do a, when we do a moving spray steep, we have these spray bars above our grain bed. We're, on, we're spraying. It flows right through the grain, and then we don't recirculate anything. I mean, you saw in the big machine, it just flows right out mm-hmm. and uh, goes, down a, goes down a drain and goes into our irrigation system, and then we, we reuse all that water, and it goes right back onto our field. Oh, that's great, um, man. Yeah, yeah. So we're like a zero, we're essentially a zero-waste facility. Wow, that yeah. is totally cool. So then, after after you you steep it and it germinates, then you have to kiln it, right? Mm-hmm. And how does that work? We have this giant propane <laughs> tank because we're not hooked up to natural gas out gas out here. Um, we were really fortunate um, that the people we work with, Ed Staub, um, here in Central Oregon, they found this twenty thousand gallon propane tank down in Southern California used hauled it up here for us, no charge, wow. uh, hooked everything up. And so we have these massive propane burners um, underneath our uh, uh, under underneath our machine. And so we're using hot, indirect air um, and really low temperature. I mean, we're talking for the majority of kilning, um, we're below 140 degrees. But we're just trying to use as warm of air as we can to drive off that moisture. Um, malting is like a super resource dependent process. You think about all the resources that go into brewing, all that stuff already happens once again when it comes to malting. Um, you have all the water use, you have your electricity for turning motors and whatnot, you have um, air movement you have to do. A lot of times during germination, we're having to refrigerate our air. Um, and then when it comes time to kiln, um, you have to have some kind of a fuel source, so whether that's natural gas. Or, or propane, um, that's probably really the only way you do it. I don't think you want to do wood fire or coal anymore. Um, <laughs> Not really. So. You get a totally different product that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, so, I mean, it's, it's a lot of people just don't think about it. Like all the back end, like what happens before a brewer even gets his hand on malt? Uh, it's been really highly processed. So our thought is let's cut down on as much inputs as we can. We're super resource efficient with everything we do because we have to be. Um, and a lot of that is because we have shallow, constant, like I would say it's constantly moving, but semi-continuously moving beds. Um, if it makes sense, like we're pretty vague online of what um, our whole process is. And it's a simple fact is it's like the only machine like it in the world. It's, it's something that me and my dad dreamed up. Um, and we went to an engineering and manufacturing firm and had them build it for us. So they didn't have any knowledge of what malting was. We taught them how to malt. We didn't have any knowledge of how to build giant stainless steel <laughs> food processing equipment. And so they helped us out, and it's kind of this partnership. And um, if, if, if everyone can imagine, like, I, I don't know, when we give the tour and stuff, the inside of the machine, the whole concept, it's, 
it's like an MC Escher, like never ending staircase. Yeah, it, so is, it goes man. around and around in that thing. And it does everything in one machine. I got some pictures of it that we'll put up on the website too. So people can kind of uh, see a little bit of what you're talking about. But yeah, so yeah. let's, let's get philosophical here, man. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you know, we haven't had a beer. At least I haven't had a beer yet, but let's try it anyway. Okay. So where do you see the market going for craft malt? Is there, are there going to be more people out there producing it? Is there going to be more locally produced malts? What, what, what's your take on all that? Well, I, I I have to give them a plug. I was on the board of directors of the Craft Maltsters Guild for about two years, and I'm still a member. There's an actual Craft Maltsters Guild, and it emulates kind of it emulates the Brewers Association. That's we cool. actually have um, one. We always have it, at least at one point or at, or at any given time, I should say, um, one of the members from the, the BA is on our board, um, too. Um, so that's a really good source for if you are interested in getting into craft malting. There's a forum. That's one of the few places you can actually get answers to some of these questions. Um, I think right now there's 38 what we consider regular member malt houses in all of North America. Um, so that, that guild is for, you know, Mexico, the U.S., and Canada, and there's quite a few starting up in Canada. Um, but a regular member mall house is what we classify as be kind of like when we're talking about breweries, we have to have a classification based on, you know, size. And so um, uh, the, the, the upper limit right now is 10,000 metric tons of malt produced a year. And to put it in perspective, like I think off of our one machine, uh, in a year, we might be making, and we're a big malt house, you know, comparably, we might be making 500 tons a year. Wow. So it'd be a malt house that is, you know, uh, making 20 times as much malt as us right out of the gate. And that's kind of the upper limit of what of what, what is considered craft malt. Um, and <laughs> there's malt houses that are starting up that are way past that right now that are calling themselves craft malt. So that's kind of the trick. And, um, you know, there's this kind of dialogue uh, about, you know, independent beer versus craft beer. Um, I come from mar- a marketing background, and I can see that, you know, uh, you know, sometimes that language gets co-opted in a way and used. And it's like, what, what's precious as far as some of this wording, craft, whatnot, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to kind of, to kind of capture that. I remember, gosh, I was, I was kind of joking around about with some of the people in the guild and I was going through uh, McDonald's driveway or not driveway, drive, drive through the other day with the kids after school. And I saw that McDonald's changed their whole menu and uh, now their burgers are signature crafted. <laughs> So (laughs) (laughs) let's let's hope that doesn't happen in the malt biz. No. Well, that's the thing is like with with anyone you work with, um, and this is really important for home brewers and brewers and everyone, we're here, and especially Mecca Grade is, and and a lot of craft malt houses are too, we're here for you to ask questions about. You should be able to get on the phone or get on email with your maltster, and this is kind of my philosophical bent, you should be asking them questions. You should know what variety you're working with. Um, you should know what field it came from. You should know all these things. I um, mean, you should be able to have a relationship with your maltster. Fortunately for us, we're also the grower too. Um, so that's been really nice is being able to bring people out to the farm, um, people to show up, you know, and we can, the, the, the crop is growing right here. Um, and, being able to have that connection with their grower, I think, is really important. It happens in hops. 
and this is like fresh hop season. Everyone's going crazy. You know, they're, they, they can run to their, their hop grower. They can pull, you know, this product right out of the field, and everyone gets super excited about that. You can do the same thing here. You're out <laughs> you as far as fresh malt, and I, but I don't think that that thought is there yet because malt has been this, this kind of monolithic thing that has been commoditized for so long, um, and that connection between grain grower and the maltster, the brewer, has been lost. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I know that when, when we were up there, my wife, who you know has never brewed a batch of beer in her life, although she got me started in it, uh, mm-hmm. and is extremely tolerant of my obsession because she likes the beer that comes out of it, but she she is a gardener and an appreciator of of people doing stuff like you're doing. She was just blown away to see that whole operation from you guys growing the grain through all the processing and then the bags of the finished malt stacked up in your warehouse, man. It, it is just amazing that you guys do that every step of the way yourselves. It's a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of work. I, I and, just, uh, you yeah. know, I, I grew up in the Midwest in Iowa, so I'm familiar with uh, how much work farmers do. And then to take that a step farther and uh, turning what you grow into another product, I, I just have a lot of respect for you guys and especially when the product is so damn good man well thank you (laughs) there's just nothing else like that means a lot yeah yeah it's it's like it's it's, gosh it's it's a lot of work that's for sure but um so one question i get all the time from people is where can they get your malt um they we we try to be really picky about the the homebrew supply stores we work with so we only sell right now into oregon um, and, and in the three different, or in the three different homebrew supply stores. So, um, in central Oregon, you can go to Ben Brew Shop, um, over in like the mid Willamette Valley. Um, you can go to, uh, um, Corvallis Homebrew and Supply over there, Joel, mm-hmm. and those guys do a really good job. And then up around Portland, you go to Steinbart and Steinbart's actually ships, um, all over now. Um, so they're, they've been working on their website, their online store for quite a while and they have they've got their shipping rates down. I know that they were getting, like they were sending out pelts and malt to the East coast here, um, bags of it and whatnot. Um, and then aside from that, if someone is over in our neck of the woods, because you know, um, retail malt does get marked up quite a bit more than like what we're selling to brewers and stuff through wholesale. Um, we have people like get a hold of us. There's always someone at the malt house. Um, and we do storefront sales too. So if you ever swinging by, and uh, want a beer and want to check it out, um, just send me an email. And we're just here to show people and kind of, like, the whole thing is, you know, showing people the farm and demystifying the whole malting process. And, and, and I'll, uh, mention, yeah. I'll mention that if people do come by to pick up some malt, you have a wonderful tasting room set up there, man. I, I've never seen a conference room that has five taps in it before. <laughs> <laughs> it could almost get me to go back to work, you know? <laughs> oh, gosh, I know. No, and it's cool. Like, um, the brewers we work with are, like, super cool. Like, they'll, they'll we'll get kegs and everything. So the, the goal is to always have um, beer on tap with our malt in it. And we set up this whole tasting room and I listed it on untapped. It's been kind of funny. We'll get people driving, um, coming back from vacation, like driving from Bend to Portland, just stop by. And there's always one of us around. Um, if we can, we'll stop what we're doing and we'll give them a tour. We'll pour some beer and talk about things. And the whole thing is set up. I always kind of, this is kind of the joke. It's, it's, 
I, you know, it's true. I, I set the whole thing up to be almost like the Jurassic Park of malt. So people can find us and we'll give them the tour. And it's kind of trying to be a little bit of a hidden gem out here. Um, but that, that, yeah, I mean, that's the other question we get is, you know, is, is everything, you know, is everything you do off your own farm? And it is. And I know it's a lot of work, um, what we do, and it also limits production, but we really wouldn't have it any other way. It's just, the whole thing is, it's just dad and I, we're the only investors, we're the only owners. So it's really cool. We did, we're not, um, you know, beholden the big, you know, corporate shareholders or anything. People aren't going to have to worry about us being bought out. It limits our production, but what we do make is kind of rare and reserved that way. Yeah, right. I can see that. And I would yeah. tell people that if they happen to be in the area, it's a totally fascinating tour, and uh, Seth is a killer host, let me tell you. Oh, <laughs> well, thank you. You, you won't come away from the tour thirsty. Beer, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yep. uh, what, what are, you got any uh, big future plans, man, for down the road? Are you just going to keep cranking on what's going on? Uh, we're working on some pretty interesting projects with the Shoots Brewery up the road. And, um, yeah, yeah, keep looking at the news feed, maybe, maybe at the end of the month or whatnot, we're working on some different kind of certifications and whatnot for, you know, water conservation and everything in our malt. Um, the one cool thing we're also, it's a continuing project with Oregon State University. We call it the Next Pint Project. Um, we're actually growing and breeding our own proprietary varieties of barley. Oh, that's so um, cool. For the farm, yeah. So um, we, this year, the three-year project, um, we started with 130 different plants. We planted them on the farm. We got them narrowed down to 30 last year, and then we just harvested here the first week of August, and we selected um, eight varieties. Um, so a lot of them are just full pine crossed with random numbers out of Germany or out of South America, or um, I think there's a full pine cross with Maris Otter in there too. Um, so we're wow. actually going to mic, we're going <laughs> we're gonna to micro malt those um, and then make beers out of them. And Oregon state's going to be part of that. Um, we're going to have a whole flavor panel of people because my palate only goes so far. I um, volunteer. Actually, I volunteer. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We'll keep you. We'll, um, We've had several people through the newsletter, and I have kind of a running list of people that want to be part of it. But we're going to do it over in Corvallis, so that'll be close. Oh, yeah, man. And, that's right um, up the road. Yeah, we'll let you know. But it's we're really receptive to what people think because the ultimate selection criteria um, for these varieties is flavor and finished beer. Um, and that's something that is just it's wild to me that um, barley breeding hasn't been done, and especially for malting barley, hasn't been done for flavor and finished beer. It's done for yield. It's done for disease resistance. It's done for all these other factors. Um, and a lot of them, you know, is, is ease of processability through a large malt house. But we don't really have to worry about that in ours. I mean, we're, we're looking for novel flavors in beer. And, um, and we're able to do that because that's a nice thing. We're a small malt house, and that's our whole focus is on that. So if something takes an extra day to kiln or an extra day to grow, yeah, it doesn't really matter as much to us, but we're kind of on the hunt for the next thing. We know that full pint is really, really unique, and when we run it through our malt house, it adds on a whole other layer of complexity. So once we know that, it's like, well, what's the next thing? Oh, man. Yeah. So uh, after this uh, killer eclipse event, you've been talking about maybe doing something else like uh, in, in like uh, late spring, early summer, and uh, 
we'll, we'll keep people informed of that as yeah. it happens. But uh, I, I think it's really great that you are so into the homebrewing side of things too, man, that, that you're having these events for homebrewers there. The thought came up like when we were doing this Eclipse deal, um, and, and that, 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 that was basically just a large customer appreciation event just to bring people out here. Um, I think everyone, from what I gather, I think everyone had an awesome time. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Hardly describes it, let me tell you. 25 taps, open 24 hours a day. It was a little over the top. I was, I was, <laughs> I was hurting for a while, I'm going to be honest. But, uh, yeah, I, 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 drank, I drank more in those three days than I usually do in a month, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's too much good beer. That's never a bad thing. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, so, um, so we'll let... Thought- yeah, we'll let people know when that when that comes up. So yeah, no, the thought came up from one of the um, from uh, from Jim up at Oregon Brew Crew. He's like, "Why don't you do a brewing man?" And um, so I'm there's something in the works. I'm, I'm thinking about reaching out to Beers Babe My Walking and uh, doing a thing here, maybe sometime in May, where um, we have we're right on the Deschutes River Canyon Rim, so we have all sorts of wildflowers and different kinds of roots and shrubs and everything else. And so I thought it'd be cool to get a whole bunch, just to have a home brewer only deal, um, have people brew on site. Cause there's people brewing on site at the eclipse event and just, just have kind of a really cool gathering uh, of, of people. Um, a lot of what I brew is, you know, kind of botanic ale. So I brew with a lot of yarrow, juniper, that kind of thing. So if people are interested in that or have any ideas or want to even be part of it, um, just feel free to reach out to me through the um, our website, and uh, we'll start talking about it. Man, I will definitely be there if there is any possible way on earth. I would not miss it uh, because <laughs> just, right on. you just have such yeah. a, a great facility there. You're an excellent host, and man, I love that barn. That barn is so cool. Uh, we'll put up some pictures of that too. So yeah. So yeah. anything else we didn't cover? You want to say about uh, Mecca Grade? No, um, I'm just trying to think if we have any new products coming out. Oh, we're we're gonna um, put out some uh, white wheat malts here. Uh, maybe the first part of next month. So be looking mid October. Um, I don't know what the name of it's going to be yet, though. We kind of <laughs> ran out of like old ghost town name starting with an r so for the rye around here so we had to call it rimrock like the rimrock next right. year but i'll try to think of something with that yeah you were it. telling me that as you're out there on the combine you spend your days thinking up names for <laughs> <laughs> well yeah i mean it's either pot like podcasts have made driving in a tractor and a combine so much better as a farmer i'll tell you what oh my gosh bet, man. yeah yeah <laughs> no i've been i've been getting caught up on all your guys's podcasts and everything and that's that really makes the time time go quick when you're just driving circles all day. Well, you know what? Maybe we can uh, run a contest at some point to have people send in ideas for names for new malts, you know? Oh, that'd be rad. Yeah. <laughs> win, yeah. win a sack of uh, a Mecca Great Estate malt by coming up with a name for the <laughs> next malt that Seth's going to make. We've been uh, we've been talking here today to Seth Klon from Mecca Great Estate Malt in Madras, Oregon, and Seth... It has just been a real pleasure, buddy. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, well, thank you. It's awesome working with you guys. Well, you know, uh, we we love you. We love your products. And uh, I'm just looking forward to anything you do. And uh, best wishes for continued success. 
Okay, that was Seth Klon of Mecca Grade Estate Malt telling us all about the history of his farm, where they got their name, what they grow, what they do with it, how they do it, and where they're heading. And to me, some of the most exciting parts of what he said were the fact that they're going to be working with Oregon State University on developing new barley varieties, one that he keeps mentioning is uh, possibly a cross between full pint and Maris Otter. I want that malt. (laughs) Yeah, man, me too. And also the fact that it looks like he is really interested in starting to grow spelt and malt that, and that could be really fun too. Yeah, and and, and of course, I think there were uh, some other interesting things in there, like I never knew you'd use liquid nitrogen with malt. (laughs) Yeah, I know, man. Uh, Like I said, uh, Seth uh, Seth is the man, no doubt about it. He has some really interesting ideas that he has come up with there, and... If you have a chance to use Mechagrade Estate Malt, give it a try. There's a, quite a few breweries out there now using it to make their beers. There's distilleries using the rye malt to make their whiskey. Check it out. It's really interesting, very different, very tasty, and uh, it, it's worth looking into. Yeah, I mean, uh, give it a give it a go. It's not that expensive for you know really what is actually a sort of a micro-produced product, uh, and of course. Look, the other thing is, there are now all these other craft monsters that are rising up. I mean, enough that they have their own guild. And this, to me, is, like, super exciting. We spent a lot of time talking about hops and exploring their varieties, but not enough time, like, really going through, like, oh, you know, Full Point is a, is a barley variety that's being used for malt. And I think Seth made the point in the talk about how there's a lot of room for people to start exploring what varieties mean and why we haven't really paid that much attention to it or really what uh, the flavor impacts are. His point was that all the barley research done so far, at least in terms of malting barley, has been about increased yield and improved disease uh, resistance, as opposed to anything about flavor. And it reminds me very much of like where hops were until just recently, where everything was about what was the maximum amount of alpha acid I could get per pound of crop. Right. Yep. So now, and now the hop industry is paying a lot of attention to flavor, obviously. So now maybe it's time for the malt industry to catch up and do the same thing. Yeah, and uh, Seth is really committed to that, and uh, it's going to be very interesting to see where he goes with stuff and where all these other maltsters that are popping up uh, go with stuff also. And, you know, as far as I know, Seth is the only maltster who's growing his own grained malt. But that's as far as I know. So if somebody out there knows of uh, another farm that is growing and malting their own grain, please let us know because we want to give these people the props that they're due. There we go. All right. Hey, I think it's time for some questions. I think it is too. So uh, we're going to take a quick break here. Stick around. When we come back, we will wrap up the show with some questions and maybe even some answers as well as a quick tip and something other than beer. We'll be right back. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com.
got questions, we might have answers. Maybe. Maybe. But today, let's uh, tackle a couple questions. And our first one's going to come from uh, Anthony Matizo. I hope I got that name correct. And this one's for you, Denny. He says, how would you change your chanterelle mushroom recipe and prep if one was using dried mushrooms? What are the mushroom amounts, preparation steps, etc.? Cheers, Anthony. Good question, Anthony, because I've thought about this and I have not come up with an answer until uh, I got your letter. And I, I have an answer, but I'm not sure it's a good answer. I would say that based on my experience, the dried mushrooms weigh maybe you know, 20% of what uh, fresh wet mushrooms weigh. So I would use a lot more of them. Um, in terms of prep, you could pre-soak them in some beer uh, so that when you put them into your beer, they don't soak it all up as they rehydrate. Uh, you could just dump them in too and see what happens. I would say that one of the issues is that it's going to be outrageously expensive to use dried mushrooms in that beer. I use a, a pound or two for five gallons, and so getting an equivalent in dried mushrooms might pretty much run your credit card to its max. But, you know, give it a try. I, like I said, I would use probably four to five times more dried than fresh. Uh, and I would put them in there. I mean, I, in terms of prep, there's not much to be done. You know, maybe if they're big pieces, break them up a bit so you have more surface area exposed. But otherwise, just put them in the beer, wait a week or two, and taste it and see if that's long enough. That's what I do with the fresh ones. So interesting question and one of these days i may uh, set aside a gallon of beer and try it to see exactly what the the reality is instead of making these wild ass guesses mm. why stop now <laughs> yeah right i'm gonna let drew tackle this next one which comes from adam thomas of new zealand and by the way adam i will be there at the new zealand homebrew conference in march along with annie johnson and randy mosher and let me tell you i am really looking forward to that anyway adam says g'day lads I hear it is hop harvest time over there in the U.S., which has me pondering hop packaging, or more specifically, the labeling on the packaging. Here in New Zealand, we grow a number of tasty hop varieties. Kiwi homebrewers also have access to all the great American, Aussie, and European varieties through our homebrew shops. Typical hop packs here are 100 grams in a vacuum-sealed foil bag. Basically, Adam goes on to say that when he buys uh, local imported hops, he has no information, and he's wondering if we get better information on our hop packs over here in the U.S. And all I can say is sometimes. You know, it depends on where you buy your hops, where they buy their hops from, what kind of information they get. One thing that is very exciting in this regard is that YCH Hops, uh, who is a wholesaler to uh, a lot of people, has introduced new packaging with loads of information on it. Uh, besides the alpha acid content, they have the beta acid content, the hop storage index, uh, a description of the hops. They even go so far as to tell you what farm the hops were grown on. So in answer to your question, Adam, it's kind of like 
yes, we do get better info sometimes, and it sounds like in general we get better info than you guys do. Hopefully the people that you buy your hops from will get hip and start giving you more information about them. And to follow on to what uh, Denny was saying, YCH and the other producers as well, but I mean, YCH is one of the biggest ones, right? Uh, they have really started to step up their game in terms of what they're providing. And the good thing is that we know, like, for instance, when you get hops from YCH, and we used this when we did this with Nico Brew, the experiments uh, earlier this year, that, you know, YCH has their own uh, analytics uh, set up. And so they're putting all of these lots through analytical analysis. So you're getting a lot of really good information. And I think it's actually forcing a lot of the industry to kind of, you know, get their act together and start uh, bringing that information down. I mean, remember... It used to be that, I mean, yeah, you got alpha acid, but you didn't know anything about, like, the year or the hop storage. You didn't know anything about beta acids. What are beta acids? would be the average homebrew thing. But now you're really starting to see that, and, and some of the packages are even starting to carry oil amounts as well. Yeah, and that's a, that's a really cool thing to know, too, once you actually learn how to use it. But uh, it's good info. So, in other words, here's the thing. We get, uh, we get some better information on some of the packaging, not on all of it. But I think what's going to happen is because people are starting to step up that game, you're going to start seeing it as well. And if it follows through, since YCH and other companies in America do provide so many hops overseas, well, I think you'll start seeing that information trickle over to you as well. Yep. So this last question is for Drew. And since we're a down under day, it comes from Craig Vall in Tugum, Queensland, Australia. Good day, fellas. I found your podcast in the last few weeks and haven't been listening to anything else since. Oh, man, I wonder how much he's drooling. I, I started brewing in December last year using a grandfather, and I've had more than my share of problems, particularly with bitterness and astringency. At a small brewery near us, they serve hopped soda water for drivers. It's a great stuff, so I tried it at home using SodaStream bottles. I put one gram of a desired hop in two liters of cool water. If the hops stay in there for more than three hours, the bitterness overrides the flavor. How would that be explained when the experiments using different hop stand temps were still so close? Would this appear to negate any theories on temps affecting bitterness? I've used Dr. Rudy, Ella, Cascade, and Citra at different times. Ah, well, so here's the thing. Not all bitterness is created equal. Remember, the IBU is a lie, right? So I suspect what's happening here is that the bitterness that you're getting is not you know, isomerized alpha acid, because yeah, you're right. I mean, that's just not going to happen at, at room temperature or cold. What you are getting is you're getting extracts of other materials from the plant matter. And I think that's precisely why the amount of time is actually impacting it. So maybe in your first couple hours there, you're just extracting all of those flavorful oils that we were just talking about in the last question. But now when you let it sit for three or more, you're starting to pull plant tannins and other things that your, your brain is going to register as bitter. Uh, so yeah, you're, I don't think, I don't suspect that you're getting actual hop bitterness per se, like how we normally think about it, but you are getting plant bitterness. Yeah. I would say that, you know, obviously you're not getting isomerized alpha acids. Something that kind of gave me a clue here when you said bitterness slash astringency, many, many people confuse those two things. Uh, astringency is a mouthfeel, like a, a drying mouthfeel, like chewing on a grape skin or something like that, whereas bitterness is bitterness. Now, 
I think that maybe what you're sensing is that astringency and it's coming across as bitterness to you. And as we have said many, many times, the main cause of astringency is pH. If you're putting those hops into water that has a high pH, you're pulling out uh, tannins from them uh, due to the pH of the water. Obviously, the less time you leave them in the water, the less of that you're going to get. So the only thing, I mean, you know, if you want to make it, then I think you've discovered one thing, which is don't leave them in there too long. And something else you might want to try with try is uh, adjusting the pH of your water before you do it. Yeah, and... Yeah. Hey, uh, in terms of, I think this also goes along with the other problem that you were saying about, yeah, all that bitterness and astringency with the grandfather. Yeah, that I I would be curious to see the pH as well. Yeah, I'd... and maybe and, and maybe also some of the other chemicals in the, in the water makeup that can also impact the organoleptic sensation. Yeah, I, I would say that uh, probably uh, water chemistry is your problem in terms of the grandfather. So if you really if you really want if you really want just uh, keep it the short time just use more hops. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Uh, so uh, this last question is obviously from Drew, and it's from somebody who didn't have the uh, guts to use their name because of the subject. I assume the question is so about pumpkin beer, how? And I would add why, but that's that's a personal decision. So Drew, about pumpkin beer, how? Yes, the name is redacted to protect the innocent. Uh, how one don't uh, <laughs> at least don't do the stupid pumpkin beer thing that ends up tasting like you know somebody mishmash something into a beer and made it taste sweet and spicy and ugh. don't do that but if you really do want to know like my take on pumpkin beer go back and listen to episode one of the podcast uh, all about triangles and pumpkins that's right and talk and in that episode we walk through like how i actually will roast pumpkins and even actually roast pumpkin puree so that it gains more flavor and a little less water so there's a little bit more actual pumpkinness to your pumpkin beer and my other thing is i don't like actually using pumpkin pie spices i do like using a spicy yeast though like say a saison yeast go figure <laughs> True. Saison yeast. Hmm. I never would have guessed. Yeah. So in short, go back, check out episode one. All the tips you need are in there. And uh, I'm still waiting for somebody to make a pumpkin beer I like. Uh, you know, I, I'm willing to try anything to find out uh, if somebody can prove me wrong. Okay. It is time for our quick tip. And that's coming from Mr. Beecham this week. Yeah. So this one should be a no brainer. But maintenance, don't defer it. So I actually uh, went to go brew today, as we're recording, and ended up having to take a break and well reschedule the brew day until tomorrow because it turns out that all of my equipment really needed to be cleaned up and everything else because it's been a while since I've been in the brewery. And my brewery's inside of a 1920s standalone garage that leaks air everywhere. So my gardener has blown dirt and leaves all over my garage much to my irritation and people have done other things around as I've been having the house painted. So yeah, I just needed to go in and, and do maintenance. So I wheeled everything out. I was all excited, got everything done, got everything set up, realized my mill was sticking. So I had to go take it apart and clean it. Realized, Oh, the, those kettles need to be clean. Oh, the fermenters, uh, I need to go do a double check on those. And, and I'm also one of those weird guys where I can, I can live in a space that's sort of messy and not in, in perfect working order, but the second I try and do something real in that space, 
So like whether it's my desk and I'm writing, whether it's the like the kitchen and I'm going in to cook or the brewery, the second I'm in that space trying to work, uh, the OCD part of my brain gets activated and I have to have everything in order. So remember, maintenance, don't defer it. It ruins brew days. So I, I want to see a show of hands out there. Uh, how many people have a gardener that they can blame their own laziness on? Uh-huh. Hey. Nobody. Hey, Nobody. Hey, see, hey, just hey. what I thought. No, I'm, I'm not blaming him for my laziness. I'm blaming him for blowing dirt and leaves into my, into my brewery. Uh-huh. Okay. All righty. So now it's time for something other, and that's my turn this week. And I got a product to tell you about that uh, I just ran into and loved. Uh, when I was over at uh, Seth's place for the eclipse back in August, a uh, guy there had this little tiny Bluetooth speaker called an Oontz, O-O-N-T-Z. Now, number one, you gotta love the name. And number two, this little thing just kicks butt. It is super simple to use. It sounds great. And uh, especially if you pick up the Plus model, which is what I did. I got the Oontz Angle Plus. Uh, it has a great amount of output, wonderful low end to it. I mean, I'm an audio guy, and I cannot believe the low end that you get out of this little tiny speaker. Uh, battery life, or actually, it's not a battery. You just plug it into your phone charger to charge it up. It lasts for 30 hours, man, on a charge. It's remarkable. It sells for 30 35 bucks. Check it out if you're in the market for a Bluetooth speaker, the Oontz Angle Plus. And you, like me, will come to love saying Oontz. Oontz, 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 Oontz. So, oh, it's from uh, Cambridge Soundworks. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, they, uh, it's a great pedigree, right? They're a great speaker company. Yeah, well, now I have, an, I have a very old Cambridge Soundworks audio system in the brewery. Oh, cool. Cool. I have JBL studio monitors in my brewery, but that's because they were left over when I closed my business. So anyway, we're not all fancy. Yeah, right. I guess that about wraps it up for today, huh? Time to go. Time to go. Okay, everybody. Thanks a bunch for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. You can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang out on a bunch of different beer forums, including the AHA forum. Drew, you can usually find on the Homebrewing subreddit or the Homebrew channel on Slack. Uh, if you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. If you want to get a hold of us each individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can also leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1AL. That's 626-765-1AL. Call us, leave us a message. We'll bleep out the obscene parts and put the rest of it on the air. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you next time on Experimental Brewing. Experimental Brewing.